0: Today on Ag News Daily.
1: When she did ultimately pass, and I, I was having those thoughts about flower farming, you know, it was, gosh, probably like two weeks between that like initial thought and my grandmother passing, and I said, you know, I'm going to start a flower farm in her honor, and that's pretty much how it started.
0: Hey, listeners! Welcome back to another episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast. This is Tanner. Do you mean Christmas? This is Tanner Winterhoff (laughs) alongside Delaney Howell. You can't even say your own name, Tanner. Morning. I was too busy thinking about happy trees, and just I don't know what that means. Oh, it'll make sense later, Delaney. Okay. Just you wait.
2: (laughs) Okay. I believe you.
0: (laughs) It's a Bob Ross reference.
2: Oh, yes, that's right.
0: Okay. Yes, which is going to make absolutely no sense to the listeners until they check out this entire episode all the way through the end.
2: That's true. Okay, now I understand what you're laying down.
0: <laughs> it was a really bad teaser, but we're now stuck with it. So that's what we're going to do. So I'll hit really fast here on New Madrid County, Missouri. The Midwest's most famous earthquake zone was busy busy monday night laney producing more than a handful six five and three point one just outside this is the boot hill of missouri just northeast of tennessee so uh, a little seismic activity down there in the neck of the woods of some of our listeners in the boot heel of missouri
2: yeah there's a lot of actually inclement weather going on Tanner because in parts of Nebraska and Kansas there were some pretty large hailstorms that swept through uh let's see yesterday into today yeah no sorry monday yesterday into today um and it's interesting I was looking at Eric Snodgrass's morning newsletter, and uh one of his folks he works with there shared a photo of it from Taylor, Nebraska, and he held the hail chunk up to a quarter and it's much larger it looks like almost softball sized hail tanner that hit quite a bit of those two states. Basically, northern Kansas and eastern Nebraska. But nonetheless, there's a lot of severe storms sweeping through large swaths of the country because we also have the hurricanes going on in the Gulf of Mexico. I was listening to the radio this morning, Tanner, on my way to the gym, and they were talking about how hurricanes change names. Do you know the answer to why a hurricane could potentially change names?
0: Uh, I always thought that it was tropical storms turned into hurricanes. That's when the name changed. Why does a hurricane name change?
2: Well, that might be part of it, but at least from what I heard on the radio this morning, and granted, I was listening to The Highway on Sirius XM, so I'm not sure they're really like the most probably logical or reliable source for weather news, but they were sharing that basically when a hurricane switches paths and goes into a different body of water is when the name officially changes.
0: Oh, well, I guess that would kind of make sense. I do yeah. know that the hurricane names are alphabetical. Yes. So if you had, if you had one that started with a D, the next one has to start with an E, um, as, <clears throat> as they are produced. But I'm curious when that picture you saw of a quarter next to a hailstone, if the hailstone was that big, why didn't they choose something larger to compare it to?
2: <laughs> I also wondered that when I was looking at the photo. Maybe that's all he had on him and a quarter just worked best. It was in his pocket. I don't know. <laughs>
0: There you go. I got a quarter in my pocket going. I'm not even going to say it. We'll roll (laughs) right in to the crop progress report. So a lot of progress, substantial progress made across the Midwest. Corn planting is now up to 86% completed and soybean planting is up to 66% completed. So when you look at corn, that was a 14 point jump and is right now nearly right on the five year average of 87%. Again, Iowa, Illinois leading the way for completion as they made big jumps, but North Dakota, as we will talk to a farmer from there tomorrow, is behind. They are only 56% planted and probably gearing towards a lot of preventative plant. Soybeans, like we said, 66%, that was an up, a jump upwards of 16%. And again, only 1% behind the five-year average. So uh good there on for on getting the crops into the ground. We are still behind on corn and or on crop development for both corn and beans. So again, behind the five-year average by seven percent on the corn side and behind the five-year average by an eight percent on the soybean side. So getting the crops in the ground Delaney, but still have a little bit of kitchen up to do.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting too, you know, you look week over week here. We are getting a lot of the crop in the ground fairly quickly, but as I think we've talked about before, you lose basically a percentage of coverage, I believe every day past the final insurance plant date. Is that accurate, Tanner?
0: That's correct. Yep.
2: So like we uh, were talking on the podcast yesterday, you know, a lot of South Dakota, North Dakota farmers are going to have to make those tough decisions and likely not going to see a lot of those crop acres get planted, like you said there, Tanner. But as we continue to look at ways that the food system is being impacted this year, of course, we could see a potential shortage in some acres, but we could also see shortages at the grocery store. Today, Secretary Vilsack released a detailed $2 $2 billion package that includes previously announced funding to expand meat and poultry processing that we've talked about before, but it also includes $600 million in new aid to support food ch- supply chain infrastructure outside of meat processing, Tanner. The plan also includes $400 million for regional food business centers and up to $300 million for a new organic transition initiative and $75 million to support urban agriculture. I don't know what a lot of these things mean yet since this did just get released earlier today, but all in all, it sounds like the administration is putting a lot of money behind it to ensure we don't see any sort of lag in the supply chain. Like we saw during COVID.
0: Yeah. I think the white house is under a lot of scrutiny, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously for a lot of things currently, but food security is one that I think is being taken very seriously. And this is where you're going to see things continue to pop up. We, reported yesterday on that private meat packing plant in Texas, and there's news today being released uh, of the largest ever beef packing plant going up around Rapid City, South Dakota. So uh, investment company and real estate firm now out of Rapid City, South Dakota, has announced that it's going to have plans to build the single largest beef packing plant that uh, is going to have nearly 1 million square foot uh, square foot footprint and process at max capacity 8000 head of cattle a day and bison so this project is slated to take 1.1 billion dollars and will employ over 2500 people if built and running at capacity the Rapid City new beef processing plant will be the single largest beef processing plant in the country do i need to compare Mm-hmm. Cargill, JPS, JBS, National Beef, and Tyson all have packing plants that have capacity under 6,000 head alone. So none of the big four will have a single plant capable of processing 8,000 head a day. And again, this will be privately owned. They obviously will have to source cattle from quite a large region to keep it full on a daily basis. But again, uh, private industry taking competition seriously to maybe bring those big four back in check.
2: Yeah. And I think that's kind of the headline here is that it is a private firm. I had this piece of news pulled up as well. So I'm glad we're both on the same page with it today, Tanner. But I think it's going to be interesting. I don't know that there are really very many other privately owned facilities like this. I'm thinking of uh, there's one here in Iowa. What is it? If this private group was also able to tap into some of those resources and help with funding this facility?
0: I would assume that there's going to be some government support to an instance one way or the other. Um, we did, like I said, the Amarillo one yesterday learned that the city is granting some incentives, which is local government, but it would be nice to see if there's some national incentives as well.
2: Absolutely. But Tanner, I tell you what, aside from chatting markets for today, I'm all out of news. What about you?
0: I just have one last piece. Well, two pieces. One's small and seems kind of silly, but uh the Third District Court of Appeals in Sacramento uh did rule that bumblebees can now be classified as <laughs> an endangered species in California mm-hmm. as being defined as fish. So the category of protected creatures under their state law now will include bees as the state appeals court ruled yesterday on Tuesday. So California's Endangered Species Law, one of the nation's first, was put in place by Governor Ronald Reagan back in 1970. It says any bird, mammal, fish, amphibia, or reptile whose existence is threatened, including invertebrates, in the definition of fish. So now they are loosely tying back bumblebees to keep them protected As a fish, but the last real piece of news is that, uh, another thing senators are pressing for is for the U.S. trade rep for, um, or Catherine Tai, the U.S. trade rep to start planning to secure supplies for U.S. fertilizer going forward. So don't want to get into any shorted situations. And it's good to see our government being proactive, but on Tuesday, they had pressed Tai to secure current and new relationships with other countries that produce the fertilizers that u.s farmers need this came from senator roger marshall of kansas chuck grassley iowa joni ernst of iowa and deb fisher of nebraska were the four pushing so according to fertilizer prices that we've been reporting all spring farmers are you know voicing their opinion and rightfully so so they are pushing Thai right now for a long-term stability for fertilizer trade for the U.S. farmers on the midst of Vladimir Putin's war. So good to see the government working towards that. I'm sure more details will come out as Thai has to put a plan together.
2: Fantastic. I didn't see that piece of news. So I'm glad you're on top of it this morning, Tanner. But I am on top of the markets this morning and we are seeing a little bit of a turnaround day here in the corn markets, probably largely trading on Increased planting progress that we reported on earlier in the podcast. New crop corn down about five cents on the day, trading at 706 and a half. New crop soybeans actually are up on the day, trading about 21 and a half cents higher at 1531. Wheat continues to trade lower after yesterday heading into today as we're seeing again more planting progress here in the United States, but also a reprieve from weather elsewhere. And in the livestock market today, we are seeing green across the screen, live cattle, feeder cattle, and lean hogs all higher on the day today, Tanner.
0: Hey, there you go. That is our market report for today. A unique conversation with a different type of farm for today.
2: Well, folks, today we're talking about a sector of agriculture we may not think of when we think ag and farming. We're talking today with Rachel Ross, owner and grower at Sunkissed Flower Farm. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you all today.
2: So, Rachel, I've got to ask, how did you get into flower farming?
1: Um, it was kind of... um. Not really planned heavily. It just kind of fell into my lap. It was a little serendipitous. I, um, I do have a background in horticulture, so I studied environmental horticulture at University of Maryland College Park. I um, didn't really know what my direction was after graduating, but I interned in a plant diagnostic laboratory there and was hired full-time upon graduation. And I'm still really interested in plant disease and pest control and things like that, which I'm sure we'll touch on later, some of those practices that I implement. Um, but we get all sort of uh, submissions from growers, including cut flower growers. And I remember we got a submission of some sort of crop. I believe it was actually ranunculus, um, which they get a lot of issues um, And I remember putting their information into the computer in our database and thinking, wow, like you can be a cut flower grower. Like you can just grow flowers like as a business. And I was very fascinated by that. And it was kind of a fleeting thought. Um, And then my grandmother had been suffering a bit. This was early 2020. And she ended up passing away in um, January of 2020. And she was kind of my um garden plant buddy. She loved gardening. She loved uh houseplants. I've acquired all of those since she passed. And um when she did ultimately pass and I, I was having those thoughts about flower farming, you know, it was gosh probably like two weeks between that like initial thought and my grandmother passing and I said, you know, I'm gonna start a flower farm in her honor. And that's pretty much how it started. And it has, you know, since I started it in February of 2020, and since then, it's just kind of um, cascaded into something pretty big, you know, in my opinion. I mean, I still grow on a very small scale, but it's uh, definitely bigger than just a tiny little garden, you know, where it started.
0: (laughs) That is a very cool story, and congrats for putting, putting a statement into fruition as you put that together, but listeners... Uh, one of the reasons this interview was sparked on our side of things was the conversation we shared with you last week from the EWG conversation around what regenerative practices farmers are doing, what what type of damage farmers are doing to the environment. Uh, and I believe we've got a really good example here off the wall, may it be, of how farmers of all types are protecting the environment. So can you elaborate a little bit on the regenerative practices that you have in your operation?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, and I'll preface in, in, you know, I always like to give a little, um, you know, I'm no expert. This is still, I'm learning and doing things, just trial and error and making lots of mistakes. But Um, I try to learn and and follow folks that kind of have paved the way a little bit, but some of the things that I like to do, um, I focus a lot on soil health, so I, you know, amend with lots of organic matter, I don't till at all, you know, um, well, in full honesty, the very first, you know, thousand square foot plot that I did, I did um, use a sod cutter and a tiller that very first time because... I hadn't learned about no-till practices and regenerative farming at that time. Um, But since then, you know, I use silage tarps to prepare new bed space or to terminate beds. I um, utilize a lot of cover crops as well. I um, use drip irrigation to be far more efficient with my water usage. I am located in Stevensville, Maryland, which is right on Kent Island. So we are a little island right in the Chesapeake Bay, so it's very much um, important for me uh, as a grower here to be very mindful of, you know, my impact on the environment. Um, So I also have a uh, native cutting garden that is in its second year, so it's starting to really show off right now. There's a lot of, um, you know, native plants in this area that are obviously have a lot more ecosystem services for native uh, insects and beneficials and, and things like that. I actually even have a, I just found this morning, a family of bunnies in there, um, which is, you know, some people like probably cringe at the fact that there's bunnies near their garden, but I found that they actually feed more on the weeds than a lot of my actual crops. So, you know, I'm, I'm letting it be at this point, we're going to live, we're going to coexist happily <laughs> as best we can.
0: <laughs> that's, that's funny. My wife and daughters found uh I don't know what you call them, a hatch, hatch of bunnies, a, a pod, what I don't know what they're called, a litter. Um, anyway, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> a, a group of baby bunnies in our flower bed and uh were quite young. They actually nursed them back with wow. cat formula. Who'd have thought we'd be experiencing a formula shortage for humans, but we could go out by cat formula. Um, <laughs> so we had a nice little science project here early summer in our house. And I want to applaud you for, for trying these regenerative practices and, take a uh, really silly shot here at the quote from your Uncle Bob Ross, that there are no mistakes, only happy accidents. So as we continue to learn across all sectors of ag, we just need to keep moving forward and make little changes. If it didn't work the first time, we do it better the second time, right, Delaney?
2: I don't have a lot of flower experience I took horticulture classes in high school and college but didn't do a very good job and I've never been one to keep plants and flowers alive when I try to have them here at home so I'm curious to learn more about the flower industry you mentioned cut flowers and different flower phases how do you grow flowers on a mass scale and what does that process look like?
1: Um, well, you broke up in a little bit at the beginning. It reconnected me, but I think I've got you now basically just kind of asking about growing flowers on a large scale and, and kind of what that looks like. Is that, is that the question? Yep. Cool. Cool. So basically growing flowers on a large scale, it is something that's, I think, um, a little bit of like an exploding market. There's a lot of people, um, that got into it, I think, during COVID. It was kind of accidental for me to start my business, you know, in February of 2020, you know, right before everything kind of hit the fan. Um, but growing flowers on a, um, you know, large scale, I mean, I'm just under a quarter acre, so I'm very, like, micro flower farm, but it's still lots of, you know, you're producing a lot of flowers. You'd be surprised how much you can produce in that amount of space. Um, but I don't, I don't have the experience with being, you know, a a vegetable farmer or grower in those senses. Um, so I can't really do by comparison, but I think there's a lot of, you know, similarities between flower farmers and other growers, Uh, a lot of the same, you know, um, um, issues that you, you may face, you know, we're dealing with, you know, I start everything from seed. I don't, at this point haven 't really bought plugs. Um, I think I bought eucalyptus plugs once, but everything else that I grow is is from seed in my grow room, so we start them um, in typical like you know whether it be seventy two or one twenty eight cell trays you know starting seed growing them inside um, till they 're about three or four weeks old. You take them out, you harden them off, um, and you set up your beds for you know, production. And there's a lot that goes into it with, you know, taking into account, you know, your sun exposure and the heights of everything. And so it's not like a, it's, it's funny when I go to market, sometimes folks are like, wow, you grow all these like in your backyard, you know, and it's a very like, um, it's a non-intentional type of, of statement, but you feel though, as though you have to kind of like, Adjust it a bit because it's like, yeah, I harvest them from my backyard, but there's so much more than just like broadcasting a handful of seeds. It's very intentional and it's very um, it's very time consuming to plan. You know, like I said, with the heights of things and days to maturity, you know, things are gonna grow faster just because their maturity height is similar. I've learned this season, you know, I had a lot of things that, that grew faster than others and they shaded out a certain crop and then I didn't get, you know, a harvest off of it. Um, so it's, you know, you're not taking things to seed essentially to like fruit. Um, so there's not that extra level like you do with like vegetable farming and things like that. You know, you're taking it to flower stage, but every flower has a different, um, you know, ideal harvest period, you know, like zinnias, you have to wait till it's fully bloomed and you have to do this little like wiggle test to make sure it's ready to be harvested or it will, it will wilt or we call it zinnia meltdown where it won't hold. And um, you have to be very conscious of harvesting everything at, at the optimal time for that specific variety so that it has, you know, the vase life for your customer. Um, and, there's different types of growing you want to grow and sell wholesale you you cater differently to your crop than if you sell retail um so there's so much more to flower farming than imagine you know i'm just in my you know second full year and i left my full-time job in the plant diagnostic laboratory last june because I couldn't do both of these things and I wanted to follow this passion. So it's been supporting me since then. It's a lot of work. I've expanded, I think, beyond my capabilities. But like we were all talking about, uh, I think Tanner said, you know, love that you quoted Bob Ross with the happy accidents because, um, I, uh, I love to focus heavily on the importance of mistakes because that's really the only way that you learn. Um, if everything turned out perfect, every time you did it, you wouldn't learn anything. And you'd be blindsided when you, something finally went wrong. So I actually feel pretty blessed when I mess something up, because I'm like, okay, now I know exactly how to not do that again. Um So there's a I think people are pretty shocked when they realize the amount of work that can go into into flower farming. Um It's, it's, can be marketed as like really glamorous and you see this like pretty lady in a sundress like frolicking through flowers and that is (laughs) never the reality ever. It's, um, which is fun, trust me. I mean, I've put on a nice little sundress at markets and and I put on that that, (laughs) you know, that look. But trust me, it's usually real dirty, real, you know, flower farming has been, I think given that some people are like, I've heard other folks say that they've gone to market and they start to incorporate veggies and people will be like, oh, you're a real farmer now, you know, and and that's, you just got to shrug it off because I think that flower farmers are real farmers. It's a lot of work and uh, we get out there and get dirty just like everybody else.
0: Well, I just think it's interesting that as we talk to people across all facets of agriculture, that there is a common barrier around just educating the public. That there are so many more steps, whether you're raising hogs for, for meat, or you're doing a pasture raised poultry operation or growing flowers. It just is such a large part of our lives that people are completely disconnected to. But as, as we kind of, this interview brings full circle, a couple others, we had a conversation last week with Megan Clark about what questions she wished a gentleman would have asked her at the Iowa state fair about her show calf. So it's nice that we have people that are willing to tell others and teach others about what they have going on. But if our listeners want to connect with you more, how is it best that they find you on social media or a website or how would you like them to do that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I have, I think a decent presence on um, social media. I do have a website as well. So, you know, I have my, my Facebook um, it's, you know, sun flower farm. It's, you know, I always have to, uh, so actually Sunkist, my name came about, Um my, my mom's initials were SK. So Sunkist is, that's the kind of the origination of the name, but it's not like the orange soda. It's Sunkist, K-I-S-S-E-D. Um, so, you know, I have Facebook, I have Instagram, I have a website. It's just SunkissFlowerFarm.com. It's very bare minimum since I'm a one woman show. I don't do a lot of, uh, website design, but you know, you you get the gist of it.
0: Absolutely. Well, thanks again for joining us here on the podcast today, and I hope you have a great rest of your growing season.
1: Awesome. Thank you all so much. It was a pleasure.
0: There you go, Delaney. My little sneaky Bob Ross comment actually brought some value to that conversation, but it was fun learning about something new.
2: It was. Good job, Tanner, sliding that in there.
0: Yeah, that that tells you all how my childhood went uh, and Mm. the two or four TV stations that we actually had as a kid growing up. So
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Did you have like the antenna ears? You had to go bang on the TV and move them around a little? You're not quite that old, though
0: didn't have to bang on the tv but you certainly did move the antenna around
2: yes i i agree i remember doing that as well but tanner i tell you what that's probably enough chit chat for today should we let the people
0: go let's let them go